Well, let's um, turn our attention back to Ezra, and we've been uh, talking about this, um, you know, this faith in a new world, and and we've we've saw the things that just make us, you know, feel so good, like you know, against all odds, God, you know, does the miraculous and gets them back to uh, to their homeland, and and even though it it takes you know, a few decades, you know, they get to the point where they, they have this, this temple, and then they're ready. They're ready to, to go to the next step, and so God sends Ezra. And it's a good story. It makes us, you know, it makes us feel good, and, and we can draw courage from that because we can go like, you know, if we just have faith, if we, if we would just believe in God, that, that God will lead us, and he'll provide for us, and he'll help us, and then we get chapter 9. You know, we have chapter 9 comes along and, and it's, it's, it's hard. It's real hard. Because things had finally got to moving, you know. And, and they come to this situation and and, and they're facing this, this, this problem. And, and even before they get to the particular issue that needed to be addressed, they face this other problem. They face this problem. If you, if you read the text, you'll realize that, that Ezra is, he's new. And we don't know how old Ezra is, but we know this. We know Ezra was not part of that first wave that came through. That you have these people that they were the, the brave, they were the bold. When, when the call went out and everybody could have gone, they were the ones who said, we'll go. And there were about, about 50,000 of them. And so they go, but then many more stayed back. And so this first wave goes and, and you know, they, they do a lot of the hard things. You know, they have to confront the people who are already living there. They have to live through all of those, you know, all the opposition that comes. And, you know, they have good leaders, and we know they're leaders at the beginning, but we don't know who their leaders are at this point. But you got to think, like, here are these people that have been there for, for decades, and now they're maybe two or three generations down. They've been there. They've established themselves. They came when no one else came. They did the work no one else wanted to do. And here comes Ezra, this new guy. And if we read the text carefully, what we understand is all the leaders are new people coming in. There's these, these new leaders. These new leaders and... And you got to think there must have been some tension there. There's, there's these people that maybe just felt like, you know, they were, you know, they, they were the ones. They, they were doing what God wanted. And who are these new people? You know, maybe they could have lived with Ezra. Maybe they could have said, you know, Ezra's okay. You know, because, you know, first of all, you know, he's got that priestly line that he's from. And, you know, he's educated and all of that. Plus... You know, he's got the backing of the king. He's okay. But why didn't Ezra just appoint some of us? 
Why is he bringing all of these other leaders that are all these new people coming in? They don't understand the situation like we understand it. They don't understand, you know, what we had to do and what we had to go through to get to what we have now. They had been there. And what they had learned is they had learned how to survive. But let me tell you something. There's a problem when your, your objective is to survive. And the problem was to survive, they learned that they had to get along. They had to compromise. You see, when our goal is just to survive or to secure the gains that we've made, we stop short of fulfilling God's purposes. You know, I, I've seen this happen, and, and I've, you know, always wondered, like, what, where, what would I be if I was in this situation? But, but sometimes, you, you know, you, you see, like, um, a pastor go to a church that's just dead and dying, the only reason it's, you know, still up is because, you know, there's nails and termites and mortar holding it together. But really, it's dead and dying. And so the, the pastor comes in, and he's, he's like, I'll, you know, we can try anything here. Because they're either dead already or so close that it's just going to die anyways. So we'll try anything. And so you'll see that pastor come in and, and other people will gather on the pastor and just say, you know, we will be faithful. We will do what God's word says. We will, we will follow it without compromise because we know that, you know, this is, you know, these are the words of life. And they'll do it. And if the church survives and then it starts to grow, and then it gets to a size where before you had nothing to lose. And so you were willing to risk everything because everything was nothing. Now the church has something. And are you willing to risk something now? And I've seen too often where at that point, you know, the pastor and others who are faithful in that situation, they, they start to back off. Not, not quite as, let's go out there and, and you know, just, just do what God wants regardless of the cost. Because now there's actual cost. And it's why you often get these churches that, that just plateau. They just get, they get stuck. It doesn't mean they're bad churches. It just means they're just happy to be there. It's this, you know, I've, we, we've made some gains, so let's hold on to them. So whether it's just this goal to survive or this goal to, to secure the gains, it, it doesn't matter because it ends up compromising. You end up compromising, and when you compromise, you stop short of fulfilling God's purpose. If God's purpose was for you to go halfway and to stop, okay, fine. But that's usually not, doesn't sound like God. God sounds more like the kind that says, through your whole life, you will pursue whatever his will is for your whole life. 
So we have this problem of, of the, the frontier, pioneering generation that, that came and got things started, but we also know they had to cut corners. We know they had to compromise, or at least they felt they had to, so that they could survive. And really, their goal became this goal of, of getting along. And let me just tell you, it's not unusual. It's something that we value in our world. We value in our world getting along. And I have nothing against getting along. I would rather get along with people than not get along with people. It just makes for a better life. But our world, and especially our society, is valuing getting along over doing what is right. You know, we, you know, we read that psalm earlier when Al was reading the psalm. You know, his nickname is Smiling Al. Um, so when Smiling Al was, was reading that uh, psalm, you know, if you noticed in there, it talked about how, you know, your mother and your father are going to forsake you, but God won't forsake you. Jesus talked about this. He talked about if you're really going to follow me, that it's going to cause conflict in your families between, you know, brothers and sisters and parents. If your goal is to get along, then how can you, how can you do what Jesus says will inevitably lead to not getting along with people who are closest to you, not even talking about people in society. And again, I'm not talking about intentionally not getting along. I'm not talking about being a, you know, a jerk Christian, you know, somebody that just goes out of their way to be so unlikable and then blames Jesus for it, right? You know these people. Hopefully it's not you. But when we just want to get along, what you need to know is what Jesus says, and we're going to look at some of these verses in a little while, but what Jesus says is, the world doesn't want to get along with me. If you're going to follow me, Jesus says, the world is not going to want to get along with you. You see, if you know truth, if there is absolute truth, which I believe there is, and if you know that truth, if you decide to compromise that truth in the name of getting along, you no longer have truth. You have something less than truth. And Christians are doing that all the time today. We're compromising because we're being, we're being confronted by a society that, that puts values out there that kind of, sort of sound okay, and then we compromise. A little bit here, a little bit there. But if truth is absolute, once you compromise one bit of it, you no longer have truth. You've given up the most fundamental truth, which is truth is absolute, because you're allowing it to be shaped by your society. If there were 
three doors that led to safety. And you know, you knew, because you had been through that door, that this is the safe door. But your friend is saying, no, it's this door over here. And you, dis- you know they're wrong. And you know this is truth. And there's only one door. There's only one way. And, but then you say, okay, let's compromise. Let's take the middle door. Would that make any sense? If Jesus is the only way, if he is the only truth, it's only one door. And so Ezra, he comes to this situation where he's, he's, he has these people who have a legitimate claim on leadership. They were there first. They did the hard work. They were the, the pioneers. They, were, they, they showed so much more faith. But over the decades, they've compromised. And he comes to them And he's there to help reestablish the people as a nation, but not just any nation. He's come to reestablish them as a covenant people of God. That kind of nation. And so we come to this this text. Again, difficult. Because things seem to be going so well. So in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1, it says, After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. Let me just help you understand. In the context of the Bible, this is not talking about intermarrying of races, ethnicities. That's not what it's talking about. Um, not in the modern sense. Some people, you know, have used this, these kind of verses to say, you know, that's what it's, you know, that's what it's, uh, you know, advocating, and it's not. And we know this is true. Those of you who came on Wednesday night, you know, we looked at several verses where, um, you know, faithful people that came from some of these different groups did intermarry. In fact, were given places of honor. You know, Joseph, you know, one of the early saviors of the, of the Israelites, his wife is Egyptian. So we know it wasn't a, a racial ethnic thing from the way that, that we would think about it. We, so what is the issue The issue is this word, this problem called syncretism. Syncretism. Syncretism was the threat then, and it's the threat today. Now, maybe it's too early in the morning for you to wrap your heads around syncretism. It's like, 
uh, Pastor, I need uh, one-syllable words uh, before noon. Let me just define syncretism for you, okay? The way that we're using the word syncretism. Syncretism is when you take, it was when you take the truth of God's word, the truth of Christianity, and you, you adjust it, you modify it, you adapt it in small ways sometimes, in big ways, but you adapt it to fit already held beliefs, already held philosophies, already held practices. It's called syncretism. You're getting Christianity in sync with everything else. See, that's the problem. What we see throughout the Old Testament is is why God gave them this, this rule right up front. Because God knew. But they didn't listen. And the good thing about them not listening is then we can look at like centuries worth of evidence that God was right. Because what, what was the problem? The problem wasn't the fact that they were marrying into other races. The problem was that they were marrying into other cultures that observed other religions and had different ethics and that was going to lead to idolatry. It was going to lead to this worship of other gods. And that that idolatry would then lead them to compromise the covenant. Remember, the covenant has, you know, the big section on worshiping God and how to worship God. And it, you know, talks about the temple and all the sacrifices. But it also has this ethical section, this section on how you should live, how you should treat one another, how you should love one another. And God is saying, you're going to compromise that. I've, I've given you, I've given you the, the, the best way you can live. I've given you the way that you can be in this very vulnerable but also important part in the world. You, you, it's kind of like, God, if you wanted to do this, why didn't you like have them like in Australia, right? Big land, disconnected from major continents. Why not have them, why not have them, the Jewish people start in a place like Hawaii? You know, this is the most uh, isolated geographic place, you know, why not here? You know, they could have gotten everything right, and then after they got it all right, then you could have sent them. No, you put them where three continents merge. You put them in a place where trade routes are constantly going in, and, and it's, it's important militarily for these, for these empires on these different continents. You put them right in the middle of that. And God's like, you know why? Because if they will follow my covenant, they will be fine. They'll be better than fine. If they will follow my covenant, they will, they will be an example right there in the middle of the world of what I can do. If people will live the way that I have said they should live. But instead, they intermarry. And when they intermarry, it leads to idolatry and the idolatry leads to compromising the covenant. 
You see, if intermarrying didn't lead to idolatry and lead to compromising the covenant, no problem. And again, we have examples from Scripture of exactly that happening. But it does happen. You see, syncretism is, is not when we as Christians adopt different cultural things or traditional things that, that, that don't change what we believe. Again, why are we speaking English instead of Aramaic? Well, besides the fact that none of us know Aramaic. But we, don't, we didn't preserve that. We changed it from culture to culture. Why are you sitting dishonoring me, the teacher? Why am I standing? You should be standing. I should be sitting. Why are we in a building like this? Why aren't we at somebody's house? Why, why do we do so many of the things we do? Why do we have these, these musical instruments up there? Where's the lyre? Anybody got a lyre hanging around? Right? Where's the lyre? Where's the shafar? Right? Why do we sing the way we sing? You guys do know that the whole system of musical notation and singing is, is a relatively modern invention. The Hebrew people, it was atonal. When it says shout, that's what they did. I don't think we shout very much in church. In fact, if, if we do, we get these looks. It's not talking about that. It's not talking about the way we dress. It's not talking about the way that, that I talk. Sometimes people, people get that confused and they say, like, oh, we're becoming like the world. No, that's not becoming like the world. Becoming like the world is when we, when we modify the truth to fit the world rather than using the world to communicate the truth. But that's what happens. And, and it's because it's this, it's kind of this perfect storm. It's this, this weakness. You know, we have this weakness. We, there's something about us that, that, you know, we know that if we're going to survive and we don't want to trust God and we're sitting there in the middle of all these people that, that could attack us, then we know that the way you get along is to build relationships with them. And so our weakness is, is that we are, you know, we're, we're afraid, and we want to strengthen our position. But sometimes our weakness is that we just give in to our human nature, and you know what? We just like what they're doing. You know, when we look at the Canaanite gods and we look at the worship practices, it's like we, we like it. Looks like fun, you know? Instead of going to church and listening to some bald dude talk, let's go drink and party. Sounds like a better way to enjoy your, your, your faith. There's an there's a attractiveness to it. There's this desire to fit in. And we know that, again, this isn't just a problem for the, the Jewish people back here 2,500 years ago. It's one that Paul talked about. In, in Romans 12, Paul, Paul talks about 
He says, don't be conformed to this world. John later on writes in 1 John chapter 2, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What is John acknowledging? He's acknowledging that the world is attractive. There's, we, we, we want to kind of, you know, go after it. And he's saying, no. saying, if you have the love of the Father, then you know what happens if you give in to the way that the world does things. But it's always there. Some people would rather believe a beautiful lie than face harsh truth. And so everything seemed to be falling in place. Everything seemed to be working out. And now Ezra is like, that hard job that I had coming in, bringing all these new leaders, having to deal with the existing leaders, trying to figure out how to make all that work, that hard job has now become even harder. And so Ezra says this. He says, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head, jealous, uh, pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Look at that. I mean, yeah, we think that's pretty extreme. We think like, oh, you know, if we're upset at our sin, you know, we might go like, yeah, I really feel bad about that. But how many of us lament this way? Tearing his garment, tearing his cloak. He's so bothered by this. He's pulling the hair out of his head. Again, I can't do that and I can't grow a beard. So I can't show you that picture. We probably need to call one of you up here that can. But I'm pretty sure it would hurt. Pretty sure that this is a sign of like just like deep despair. And it says, all who tremble at the words, that's a phrase that just says all who, who follow God's word, all who respect God's word, as Ezra did. He said they all gathered around. And so why is Ezra doing this? Ezra's doing this because he understands the danger and the tragedy of syncretism. It's because he knows something that apparently the people who had returned at first and maybe even some of those who returned with him didn't know. And what he knows 
is that God didn't call them just to go back to Jerusalem just so that they could survive, just so that they, you know, they could, they could, you know, have a good life. He called them back there because they were his covenant people. And he was restoring them to the promised land after having judged them. And somehow they missed all that. They didn't, they didn't get that, that, they, that they were the covenant people. You know, we talked last week about the time of King Josiah and how they rediscover the law and, and how, you know, it had taken centuries, but eventually they had lost and forgotten the law. Well, it doesn't take these people very long at all. A few decades. Ezra knows that this is deadly to God's plan. It's deadly to, to God's plan of reestablishing this covenant people. Ezra knows this is just repeating of that pattern that maybe he had hope that they had, they had finally broken. Maybe he had hope that, that the judgment from God in bringing Babylon upon, upon Judah was so so powerful, so strong that he believed like, okay, it's a new day. We've left behind that struggle of the past, that struggle for, of syncretism and, and wanting to compromise. We've left that behind and now we're going to be the people of truth. You know, we've spent, he might have looked like we look and, and say like in the time of, of the exile, the, the people of of, of Israel, the Jewish people, they, they become so much more focused on God's law. It becomes so much more of an ethical faith. And, and he might have gone like, all right, we got this. Now we can go back and, and not just reestablish what was before, but do it better because we're locked into the law. And then he finds this. And it's, it's this danger, but it's also this tragedy. It's this tragedy because God had been telling them, this is the best way to live. This is the best way to, to, to be a society in this area. And, he, and, and they've, they've had centuries of showing what happens when you don't do that. And it's not just God's judgment that comes upon them. What we read in the book of Judges is, is it's terrible that when, when the judgment comes. But if you remember the book of Judges, how it ends, it doesn't end with people invading. How the book of Judges ends is with, with Israel, the tribes of Israel, at each other's throats. It talks about even in the priesthood, there is such sin, such corruption. If, if you don't have trouble sleeping at night, then you want trouble sleeping at night, read the last few chapters of Judges. Read it slowly. Picture what happens. It's terrible. Ezra knows. It's dangerous and it's tragic. But
But you see, that's why syncretism is the biggest threat. Because syncretism feels right. We're getting along. We're fitting in. We're doing it in the, you know, name of love. Feels right. But he knows the compromising of truth, as we said, it's the loss of truth. And that's why Jesus says in John 17, he says, he's, he's praying to, to God here. And, and he's praying specifically about his current disciples. And he says, I have given them your, wor- your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You know, one of the things that, that is a demonstration, I think, of that, that, that you are growing in your faith One of the feelings is that you feel more and more alien in your society. In the church, you feel more and more at home with people who are like-minded. But as you look at the world around you, you feel more and more that this world is not your home. And yet so many Christians, the goal is to fit in, to be accepted, to get along. And Jesus just saying right here, my disciples, they're not of this world. He's implying, of course, they're of our world, God. Jesus will say in other places, like, like, you know, that, that the world hates them because they hate me. Think about if Jesus had just wanted to get along. Good news for Jesus. He would probably have never ended up on the cross. Probably would have had a good life. Might have had a nice family, got a house. You know, good retirement plan. Jesus didn't do that. But notice what he says in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We need to know this word because the word sanctifies us. I think more and more I'm hearing like you know, kind of Christians waking up to something that they should have woken up to 30 years ago. I'm always somewhat amused, although I try not to show it, when a Christian will come to me and say, you know what, we're in the middle of a culture war. 
It's like, yeah, hmm, yeah, we are. Thanks for joining us. It's been going on for a long time. And then they start to worry, like, how do I, you know, how do I help, you know, protect my kids? How do I, how do I do this for, you know, the, you know, my my family, my generation? How do, how do I do that? What what can I do? Oh, right here. Sanctify them in truth. Sanctify them in in God's word. But remember, it's not just getting people to recite doctrine. It's not getting people to be able to recite Bible verses. It's to, it's to help them not just see the Word of God in the Bible, but, you know, parents, if you're concerned, it's about seeing the Word of God alive in your life. Not perfect. Unless you have a perfect kid, which I'm pretty sure most of you know you don't, it doesn't do them any good to see the perfect Christian parent they need to see a real Christian parent, the kind that makes mistakes, the kind that is still working out their own salvation. And they need to see, like, what happens when that happens? What did my mom do when she got upset at that person at the store who took the last sale item and she really wanted it. How did she respond? What did my dad, how does, what does he do when he's having problems at work? How do they deal with each other when they fight and disagree? It's not just pouring the word into them. Yes, we should do that. But it's what they see. Do they see the truth being lived in us? Or do they see us modeling for them syncretism and compromising? In verse 5, he says this, And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting, with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt and for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruin, and to give its protection in Judea and Jerusalem. 
Ezra just confesses. Just confesses. Ezra didn't commit this particular sin, but he owns it anyways because he's the leader. He understands that as the leader, it's as much his sin as it is anyone else's. He owns it all, past and present. There's not this thing that we typically do. What we typically do in somebody in our company or in our family or in our school or something else, whenever they do something, we, you know, we try to separate. Not me. Maybe that's appropriate there. But it's not appropriate in the church. If we're one body in Christ, we're one body in Christ. And so he owns it. Not just the current problem, he owns the past too. You see, we need leaders like Ezra to lead us out of syncretism. Not because he's smart, not because he's so holy and so pure, but because he understands the danger, he understands the tragedy, And he understands that this first step is just confessing it, acknowledging it. If some people were to ask me, like, well, how are we syncretizing? How are we syncretizing? I I could start giving you a list. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know what you would do with it. Because we have a way of explaining these things. But I do know this, we need to confront it and we need to realize it's an ever-present threat. It's hard to do. It seems like it would be better just to get along. And what we know for sure is the prior leaders didn't do it. In fact, they even participated in it. If you might ask, like, why would God leave, you know, these leaders there or these people there without Ezra for 50 years? Well, probably because at the time Ezra was a baby. Not sure they would have listened to a baby. But also, you know what? If after 50 years they haven't fixed it, what makes you think they're going to fix it in year 51? You ever go into a situation that's horribly broken and it's been that way for a long, long time and then you go in and you try to make suggestions, you try to fix it and people resist like, we got this, we're we're working on it. If you were going to fix it, you would have fixed it. They didn't. Ezra helps them. He's going to help them. We're going to see this. He's going to help them do what they don't want to do but they know they should. Ezra doesn't use their situation as an excuse to sin. He doesn't say like, you know, look, you know, we don't have walls in our city. We don't have an army. We don't really have a central government. We're so weak. We have to get along. It's the only way we're going to survive. Ezra could have said that, but he doesn't. Instead, he he repeats that very same situation and he doesn't use it as an excuse. He simply uses it for what it is, a reason to honor God. He understands. And in this last segment, 
he says this, and now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servant, it's the prophet saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of uh, to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the land, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there would be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Two important things, I think, in all of this. You know, he kind of rehashes the sin, but then he says there in verse 13, he says, he says, you know, that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. He's not saying like, oh, yeah, 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 we've already suffered. He's like, no. Even Babylon coming in and destroying us and sending us into exile and slaughtering it, it still is less than what we deserve. This is a guy who gets it. He understands the tragedy of sin. He gets it. And then he says, but you've given us a remnant this faithful remnant. But then the last thing he says is he goes, behold, we are before you in our guilt. He's basically saying, God, do whatever you need to do to us. If you brought us back here to demonstrate how thick-headed we are, how, th how thick our hearts were, that so callous that we would go back to the same problems, if that's what you brought us back for, Wipe us out if that's, your, if that's what needs to happen. Whatever you decide, we know will be just. Again, we would expect Ezra to say, one more chance, God, just one more chance. I can do better. I can do better than all those other people. Just give me one more chance. I'll take care of it. But he doesn't. He accepts God's judgment even though he doesn't know what it is. See, it's easy, you know, if, if we ever get the courage to, to confront compromising, to confront syncretism, it's easy to say, like, well, I just won't do it anymore. It's easy to say, well, you know, those are like victimless crimes. We'll just leave them alone. It's hard to say, I will accept whatever the punishment is. And just know this, even if God doesn't add to the punishment, when we syncretize, we already suffer. As a church, we suffer because we weaken our church when we syncretize. And we can never be what God called us to be. The temptation to syncretism 
is always there. The temptation to compromise is always there. It's easy to justify. It's attractive. It's easy to kind of ignore and pretend it's not there. It's also easy for it just to creep in without us even knowing it. But we need to know that if we're going to be people of the new covenant, people who believe in God, believe in a right relationship with God, we have to always be on guard against syncretism. You see, when we syncretize, what we're saying is, God, I want the benefits of a relationship with you without losing the benefits of a relationship with the world. We kind of want to renegotiate the covenant. God, I like this covenant, but eh, I think it could improve. Here's my terms. Just know this. If we attempt to alter the terms of our covenant with God, it's no longer a covenant with God. It's our own agreement. And so we we get this very uncomfortable message today from God's Word. We get this thing that should make us think about our own lives. Where have we compromised? Where have we syncretized? What are things that we are so convinced is right that really isn't found in God's Word? What are positions we hold on on social issues that we think we're so right because it's what the world says is right and it sounds right, but it's not what God's Word says. It's uncomfortable, but it's important. We must ask ourselves these questions constantly. We must guard against syncretism. And we must get it out of our lives when we know it's there.